I've dreamt about doing this for years. An extended hike into the wilderness, just me and a backpack at one with Mother Nature. Now feels like the perfect time. I recently completed my PhD, but a 9-to-5 job and family life never really appealed to me. It's so liberating leaving civilization behind. Goodbye pollution, goodbye cell phone. I've kept my solar radio though, in case I fancy some entertainment. The first day was an easy trek. Not too far from the city, just into the mountains by the reservoir. It's so peaceful up there, but I stealth camped just in case. Made sure I didn't leave anything behind, of course. Carefully packed my food wrappers and the containers. Leave no trace, that's the aim. Breakfast was probably my last shop-bought meal. I've become an expert at foraging. I'll need to supplement it with a little wild game, but my crossbow skills are blossoming and population control isn't always a bad thing. The next couple of days are going to be arduous, though. Need to get deep into the mountains, as far from people as possible. Then the incubation period will be over. It'll spread quickly after that. It wasn't difficult for me to modify the virus, waterborne, airborne, internal bleeding. Not pretty, but 100% fatal. Eventually. They'll try to contain it naturally, attempt quarantine, but we've seen how well that works in practice, haven't we, folks? It'll take a few decades, maybe longer, but it'll be worth it, she promised. Paradise regained, me and Mother Nature truly at one. Solitude bliss. Just like none of you fuckers ever even existed. You're sleepless in another dimension. A dimension of horror, cursed to be frightened and disturbed. A journey into a terrifying land whose boundaries are inky darkness. Your next stop, the No Sleep Zone. Now open the door and brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. light and shadow. I'm David Cummings, and this is the No Sleep Zone. Getting away from it all, quite literally. Camping has never felt so isolating, huh? A catchy little story likely to go viral from author Lisselle Jones from the tale which was this episode's cold open, Leave No Trace, performed by David Alt. Well, we're right in the thick of summer these days, with apologies to our listeners in the Southern Hemisphere. So take advantage of the long, warm days and do some camping. You don't even need a goat valley. Just pack up some gear and head into the wilderness. 
As you'll hear in the tales from this episode, there's only a few small things that could go wrong. Well, not small things. And by wrong, I guess I mean catastrophically horrible. Ah, well, tomato, tomato, right? So it's safe to say you should brace yourself, because, like sleeping campers, this one is intense. Now, that's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop awaits as the horror begins. In our first tale, we meet a couple going, well, you guessed it, they're going camping. And while the man loves camping, his girlfriend isn't too fond of the activity. But love means making sacrifices, right? And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, their trek takes them to a lake, and they soon discover why it has such an odd name. Performing this tale are Lindsay Russo and Kyle Akers. So before we go for a swim, let's hear from the woman about her discovery. You see, she tells us, I know why they call it Big Head Lake. I hated camping. My boyfriend loved it. So we compromised and we went camping. I put on a brave face, packed my bug spray and let him do everything else. He assured me it would be great, fun. Nothing like the disastrous trips of my childhood where my sister wet her sleeping bag and cried until I let her use mine. Or the one where my mom was sure the leaves behind our tents were not poison ivy. Or that time dad fancied himself a fisherman. But the only thing he ended up hooking was my cheek. No, no, this time would be different. Starting off felt just the same. Up before the sun, lugging my backpack to the car, flopping over in the passenger seat. Andre tried to get back into my good graces with a big travel mug of fresh-brewed coffee. But I told him it'd take more than a little caffeine to complete his redemption arc. Don't be like that, Ro. If you wanted the sunny-side-up version, you shouldn't have gotten me out of bed so early. Good thing you're cute even when you're grumpy. (laughs) Good thing you're cute even when I'm grumpy. I stuck my tongue out at him and sank lower in my seat. Where are we going, anyway? Didn't you look at anything I sent you? I made a noncommittal noise from over the rim of my mug. I emailed you that... Never mind. Big Head Lake. It's about an hour away. In the state park. Kind of a hidden gem type thing. Not many people know about it. Big Head? Named for the large phallic trees lining its shores? Maybe it's shaped like a giant dick. Just the tip, anyway. We smiled at each other. I was still unenthused about our three-day getaway, but maybe Andre was right. With him, it'd be different. I slept most of the ride there. Andre was probably happy to let me. I couldn't complain if I wasn't conscious. The road turning to crunching gravel and then dirt woke me. We bounced along the narrow forest trail, wide enough for only a single car. And the deeper we went, the more the trees seemed to close in behind us. Big Head Lake glittered in the early morning sun as we finally broke free of the trees. A range of hills, still blanketed in fog, rolled across the horizon on the opposite bank. Begrudgingly, I had to give it to Andre. He'd picked a pretty good spot. You want to set up the tent, or... Nope, I said, stretching as I got out of the car. I'm getting my beach chair, my umbrella, and my book. And that's it. 
You said you'd handle everything else. I meant planning. That's not what I heard. Roxanne. I blew him a kiss as I swiped my things and sauntered down to the strip of rocky beach at the water's edge. He grumbled the whole time he fought with the tent poles and unloaded our gear. Without screaming siblings, arguing parents, and a crowd of similar families all squashed together on overpopulated campgrounds, it actually wasn't difficult to enjoy myself. I dipped my feet in the water while Andre fished nearby. We went on a hike up the nearest path and ended up on a cliff overlooking the lake. And then we napped in the shade before starting a fire for dinner. It felt like we had the whole world to ourselves. So skinny dipping was the obvious sunset choice. I wrapped my arms around my bare chest. Andre had dived right in and was standing in waist-deep water. He grinned, hunched slightly, and spread both arms wide to either side. Don't you dare! But a wave of water splashed over me anyway. He laughed while I danced around, (laughs) sputtering. You bastard! Maybe next time you'll help me unload. We splashed and dunked each other, shared underwater kisses, and watched the sky turn to gold as the sun crept behind the distant hills. Let's get out and roast some marshmallows. Is that a euphemism? He wiggled his eyebrows suggestively as I slapped the water, spraying him with drops while I giggled. But the smile had faded from his face. He was staring over my shoulder, brow creased with confusion. What is it? I turned to look out over the lake. Dusk had turned it a deeper blue and the surface was glassy and still beyond our ripples. I saw something. What? A fish? I don't think so. It bobbed up for a second, then went back down. Goosebumps broke out across the back of my neck. Are you trying to scare me? No. He took my wrist and pulled me towards shore. His eyes stayed fixed on the water. Come on. Hurry. His tone, soft and serious, made my heart skip a beat. As we waited quickly for the beach, I looked back. A mass of something dark and stringy had bubbled to the surface. It fanned like seaweed across the surface, drifting with the current. What is that? I don't know. Andre tugged me more urgently to shore, but I couldn't look away. The clump didn't move, just floated a few yards out in the deeper part of the lake. But a knot had formed in my stomach and it was starting to tighten. As we scrambled onto the beach, the stringy mass bobbed. It moved! Get dressed. Where'd I put my pants? I hardly heard him. Small ripples spread from the clump in widening rings. It bobbed again, this time almost disappearing beneath the water, only to resurface once more. And panic bile burned at the back of my throat. The dark, stringy mass wasn't seaweed. It was hair. And it was rising out of the water. Beneath the long, knotted tendrils of dripping black, a woman's giant head and trailing spine lifted from the lake. She glided silently upwards and hovered in the air. With the fading sunlight behind her, it was impossible to make out any features, but I could feel her staring at us. Andre! I tore my gaze from the head and looked to him, terror ripping all reason from me. Andre's mouth had fallen open and his eyes widened into saucers. I hadn't noticed how tight his grip on my hand had become. Keys. Where are the keys? The head was drifting lazily toward shore, toward us, still bobbing as if it were floating in water. I tried to form words, to remember any, but all that came out was a strangled sound. The giant head was picking up speed, the base of her spine slicing through the lake's surface like a skeletal rudder. Pants. 
Andre suddenly dove away from me. It was his letting go of me that finally made me cry out, like his hand had been the only thing keeping my fear from becoming absolute. I screamed. Then Andre was pulling me toward the car. My legs didn't want to work any more than my brain did. I couldn't look away from her. How close she was to shore, how fast she was moving, and the wild spread of her matted hair. Andre thrust me in the passenger seat and ran around to the driver's side. He dove in, jammed the keys in the ignition, and the engine roared. She was so close the taillights cast her in a red glow, highlighting the gaunt angles of her pale face. Sunken eyes burned with a hungry light, their yellow tinge turned to fire. A wide mouth split the head almost in two, and as she neared the back of the car, it began to open to a black void lined in jagged white. Metal crunched and the rear of the car came off. Andre slammed down on the accelerator anyway. The back wheel spun, whining, but the front bit into the dirt, churning against the ground. The bumper tore away with a groan and sharp snaps, and the car jumped forward. Andre yelped and struggled to keep it on the path. We careened dangerously close to the tree line before he was able to ride it. In the rearview mirror, I watched the head spit the mangled bumper to the ground and resume her pursuit. She filled the road behind us, all gnashing teeth and billowing black hair. Andre took a corner sharply, and I swear we were on two wheels, skidding, a hair's breadth from going off-road. He spun the wheel, and I thought we were clear, but we were going too fast. The tires couldn't get any grip on the forest floor, and we spun. I grabbed the edges of my seat. I was screaming. Andre was screaming. Somehow, in all the chaos, I still thought to look in the mirror. The relief I felt at seeing only a glimpse of an empty path lasted until the car slammed into a tree trunk. Ro. Andre's voice was shaking beside my ear. Everything was muddled and ringing. I blinked, trying to find something to focus on. I found it in Andre's face, leaning over me. A line of red was dripping down his cheek from a gash over his eyebrow. Dazedly, I reached to wipe it away, but he stopped me. You have to get up. I nodded, only dimly aware of the press of my door against my side, the cracks spiderwebbing across my window. I reached absently for the handle. You can't. Your side is against a tree. Come this way. He helped me over the center console and out of the car. Sticky, wet warmth coated one side of my face, and I reached up with shaking fingers to find blood pouring from along my hairline. I could only stare at my red hand and the headlights. Come on, baby. He was looking around, eyes darting, breath coming in quick gasps. He took my hand and started running. I staggered after him, trying to keep up, to stop the tears blurring my vision. The forest was eerily quiet around us, the only noise seeming to come from our footfall. Sticks and stones dug into my bare feet, but I bit down on my lip to keep from making any sounds. The head was nowhere to be seen. Neither of us knew where we were going, only that we didn't dare stop. Low branches and thorny bushes snagged on our exposed skin, leaving bloodied wounds across our naked bodies. I stumbled, lungs burning, legs becoming watery beneath me, and almost took Andre down with me. He grabbed my waist to steady both of us, his own chest heaving. I looked up at him, desperate, helpless, confused, floating above his head, 
A row of teeth smiled in the dark. Andre jolted, his back going pin straight and his body stiffened. His grip on me loosened and I fell to the ground. The tip of her spine pierced through his torso and lifted him from the ground. He attempted to gasp, but all he could manage was a burbling inhale. He lifted his hands to his chest, fingers grasping weakly, but it was a reflexive, mechanical motion. Her eyes met, and then there was nothing left of him. Only his hanging body. I wanted to scream. I tried to, but beneath the giant head's yellow gaze, I was frozen. We stared at one another for a long moment, until she turned slowly, Andre dangling like a fresh-caught fish from her spine. She glided silently through the trees, back toward the lake, and the further she got, the more the forest came to life again, the crickets, the frogs, and finally, my terrified, heartbroken screaming. When you're young, wild, and carefree, you get to do things that us buttoned-down old squares can no longer do. Travel the country living out of your vehicle, traversing the highways and byways, ah, the vagabond life. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author John Beardify, one man finds it difficult to find spots to safely park overnight. That is, until he's offered a very helpful map. I join Atticus Jackson, Danielle McRae, Jesse Cornett, and Mick Wingert in performing this tale. So let's hear from the man about why he stopped his travels as he explains why I quit living in my van. When I was 25, I traveled across America in a modified van. For three months, I didn't have to worry about rent. I got my food from the dumpsters behind pizza shops and supermarkets. When I needed gas, I played my guitar on a street corner until my cup was full of change. A nationwide gym membership took care of showers. And as for friendship, in almost every town I visited, I found a bonfire surrounded by other travelers like me. The only real problem was finding somewhere to sleep. Depending on local laws, residential streets, city parks, and 24-hour parking lots might be off limits. The places left over were usually exposed, isolated, and dangerous. Places that make you suspect that the driver of that big semi-truck idling beside you was a serial killer. Places that magnify rustling in the bushes or make you wonder if you heard laughter from just outside your van. At some point, almost every conversation around the bonfire turned to the search for safe spots to park. I was at a field party, 
watching the sunset and wondering miserably if I was going to have to drive overnight yet again, when a teenage crust punk nudged my elbow. So there's this map. It's got some sweet spots. Marked in red. They shoved the biggest folding map I'd ever seen into my hands. It was the color of charcoal. Everything black or gray, except for the crimson dots. I tried a couple of them. Quiet, no cops. It's just... They hesitated. Well, I guess you'll find out. They held up a black-nailed hand. So, uh, later. Sirens and flashing blue lights appeared at the edge of the tall grass. Cops coming to break up the party. Everyone split, and I peeled out of the gravel lot in the direction of the first red marker. The sweet spot turned out to be the parking lot behind a small warehouse. A single lamp, like a nightlight, glowed over its padlocked door. It wasn't abandoned, but it didn't seem like anyone was going to come scare me off anytime soon either. The warehouse was the only building for miles in any direction. I had no idea what it could be for, but did it really matter? The spot was perfect. I set up the van around back and drifted off to the sound of wind in the aspen trees. When I climbed out to take a leak, the digital clock read 2.34. Even the wind was quiet. I'd barely finished watering the dandelions when something moved in the warehouse behind me. As I crept back to the van, the noise got clearer. Whatever was in there was jiggling and slopping around like coagulated soup. And it was huge. It threw itself against the warehouse door hard enough to make the padlock shake. Once. Twice. Three times. Then it let out a low, sad moan. It fell silent. Of all the weird alien burbling sounds I just heard, that moan was the worst. Because it sounded so human. I woke up to bluebirds and sunshine. The odd warehouse was still locked up tight, and I'd wondered if I just dreamt the whole thing. Either way, a few freaky noises were nothing compared to the dangers I was used to. Drug addicts, sadistic cops, curious bears. I'd spent the day hiking up an icy creek with strangers I met at a trailhead, and when the weather turned nasty, I found a cozy public library. On my way out, I spotted an Italian restaurant full of couples and asked the owner if he'd let me play a couple of 90s tunes on my guitar for the candlelight dining crowd. When he said yes, I made enough cash to eat there myself and pay for gas all the way to Texas. After dinner, I set out for the nearest dot on my strange map. It turned out to be a closed-down fishing supply shop along a deserted country road. Puck's Live Bait the sign read, but it didn't look like the gravel lot had seen any life for a long time. The store's only distinguishing feature was a plastic statue of a smiling baby holding up a fish. It was over eight feet tall, but chipped and fading paint made it look like an abandoned doll. 
There was something about those unblinking plastic eyes that I didn't like. But I'd just eaten my first real meal in weeks and washed it down with wine. I could put up with some creepiness for a little bit of shut-eye. I parked so that the van was hidden from the road, reclined the driver's seat, and drifted into a dreamless sleep. 3.20 read my digital clock. I wondered groggily why my eyes were open. Then I heard it again. Tapping on the van window. Now I almost didn't want to look. What if I turned and saw a pair of giant plastic eyes? I mustered the courage to put my seat up and saw an old man in a rubber fishing hat and rain slicker. A light drizzle was falling outside. The sound got more insistent. It was almost metallic, and I wondered what the old man was tapping with. I rolled my window down an inch. Hello? Howdy, neighbor! The man's eyes were cheerful, but his mouth barely moved, like it was somehow full. And it was the strangest expression I'd ever seen. I'm here for bait! I stared, dumbfounded. This is the bait store! The man's voice rose like a tea kettle until he was practically screaming. And I want my bait! I noticed with horror that the man's fingers had come through the top of the window. In his right hand, he held the fishing knife he'd been tapping with. I reversed as hard as I could. The man didn't fall, he just watched me speed out of the gravel lot. And I'd swear, the eyes of the giant plastic baby did too. I didn't stop until I saw the lights of a 24-hour gas station. My tank was low anyway, so I pulled in to fill up and get myself under control. My knuckles were white around the wheel, and I could hear my own heartbeat thundering in my ears. It was such a relief to see those familiar sights I'd always taken for granted. Rows of unhealthy snacks, weak old hot dogs turning on the roller grill, coffee and styrofoam cups. An attendant in a red visor and vest uniform whistled while he wiped down the slushy machine. I grabbed some comfort food to soothe my heaving stomach and walked up to the cash register. Howdy, neighbor! It was the old man from the bait shop. Those same painfully happy eyes. That mouth swollen half shut like it was holding in a secret. I couldn't believe it. I just saw you. How are you here? You're not on your roads anymore, neighbor. You're on our roads now. The old man grinned. His teeth were sparkling white, almost horse-sized, so large that they didn't fit in his mouth. I sprinted to the van and grabbed my phone, ready to call the police, the fire department, anybody. No service. No matter how far I zoomed out on my Maps app, all I saw was green. The old man held the knife to my window. He ground his enormous teeth together excitedly, 
fat glob of drool dribbled down his chin. Like before, I tried to reverse, but the van lurched strangely. Tires. He'd slashed the tires. If he hit the window any harder, it might shatter. Go away! Just like that, the old man disappeared. The lights of the gas station immediately went out. I sat in darkness, listening to my own ragged breaths, until a knife stabbed straight down through the metal roof. <laughs> What's wrong, neighbor? Don't you want a slushy? His next jab missed my ear by an inch. <laughs> the wheels would get destroyed if I drove, but ahead of him than me. I swerved, but I wasn't going fast enough to fling away the attacker hacking at my roof. I pulled out onto the empty road, trying to build up speed. And I slammed on the brakes. With a shriek, a red uniformed shape flew through my high beams. I accelerated forward, but I didn't hear any thump. I clenched my teeth against the sound of metal scraping on asphalt. My rims weren't going to last much longer. I had to get off the road. But how? The charcoal-colored map that had gotten me into this was still in the passenger seat. I stopped in the middle of the deserted road to get my bearings. As I studied the map, I realized that some of the strange gray lines might indicate a different kind of road, like the kind I was currently on. If I was right, there should be a turnoff to a place called Yellow Vale before too long. From there, I could connect to one of the red points and finally escape from wherever this was. My van had other plans. At least the exit for Yellow Vale was in sight when it finally broke down. With no other options, I stuffed only what was necessary into my backpack and started off on foot. My headlamp was the only light beneath the starless sky. A beacon for anything hunting out there in the dark. Nothing moved. Not even the wind, but somehow the stillness made it worse. According to the map, I'd turn right after the exit, and about two miles down the road, I'd find a red point. Exactly what it would be, whether safe or deadly, there was no way to know. I walked up to the exit ramp like it was a sidewalk. It's not like there were any other cars on the road. I paused below the sign for Yellow Veil 6. The color and text were wrong somehow. Like... Whoever had made it knew what a road sign was, but had never actually seen one. I reached out to touch it, but its surface burbled like acid toward my hand. I pulled away and kept walking. The same dead trees stretching on forever in every direction. The same silence. I saw a pool of light in the abyss getting closer with every step. Soon I was close enough to see what it was. A rest area. A little brown brick structure with restrooms, vending machines, trash cans, and benches. A beige RV was parked in front. Was this my red point? 
I just started up the ramp when I heard scuffling behind me. A pack of skinless, dog-like things were crossing the road behind me. A few of them froze in the beam of my headlamp, snarling. They clawed the pavement, bent their raw bodies for attack. The light. They were coming for the light. I hated giving up my vision, but I had no choice. I switched off my headlamp. The darkness filled with howls, angry, confused yips, and the clatter of paws on the pavement. I fixed my eyes on the rest area and tried not to think about unseen teeth sinking into my legs. By the time I was halfway up the ramp, I could no longer hear them. I checked out the RV first. Its door was off its hinges and there was no light inside. I switched my headlamp back on and climbed the stairs. It was like a time capsule from the 1980s had exploded inside. Star Wars bedsheets on an overturned mattress, shattered wood paneling, a shredded Stretch Armstrong, and a dried out, half-eaten corpse hanging from the ceiling by its smiley face tie. I backed slowly out of the RV, wondering if I'd see those skinless hounds waiting patiently for their meal. But the parking lot was deserted. The lights were on in the rest area, but the map frames and shelves were empty. I'd just begun to explore the men's restroom when a door creaked shut somewhere outside. I wasn't alone. I thought of the half-eaten corpse in the RV outside and scurried into a bathroom stall. Heavy footsteps. A squeaky wheel. A wet, slopping sound. I pulled my knees to my chest. The stall door flew open. More wet, slopping sounds. Through the gap beneath the stall door, I saw the bottom half of a janitorial uniform. There was a push on the door, and a slam. Huh? Anybody in there? I held my breath, and the thing outside started pulling the door off of its hinges. I shut my eyes tight. You alright, man? Don't tell me you're another druggie. I was face to face with one very confused South Carolina custodian. I wanted to hug the guy, but I'd figured I'd already freaked him out enough. I rushed outside, saw the brochures, the maps, the tourists and butterflies and morning sunshine. I felt myself slammed against a wall. Two officers cuffed me, and I felt the charcoal-colored map pulled from my grasp. The officers spun me around, receiving a warning from a bald white guy in a suit. Don't touch his skin till he's been debriefed. Once we were away from curious onlookers, he held up the map. I want you to tell me what you think this is. It, uh, it shows places you can spend the night. Places where people don't go. Places where people don't go. You got that part right, son. Too right. He flipped open a notepad. 
Now, I'm gonna ask you a couple of things, and you best answer honestly. We'll know if you're lying. Have you looked in a mirror in the past 48 hours? Have you exchanged fluids with any entity within the past 48 hours? Can you tell me who the president is? Do you remember your mother's face? I'd been interrogated by police before, but never like this. The weird questions seemed to go on forever. Finally, the man stepped away and made a phone call. When he finished, the officers removed the cuffs. I'd warn you not to come back to this place after midnight. But from the look on your face, I think you've learned your lesson already. He and the two officers walked down the grassy hill to an unmarked white SUV. So plain and soccer momish, it was almost funny. I never saw them again. But I've always slept in my own bed ever since. best things about camping is sitting around a fire at night, watching the hypnotic flames, the crackling logs, the heady aroma of the burning wood. Ah, delightful. And making it even better? Why, telling scary stories, of course. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author T. Takeda Wise, when the spooky tales are done, they do the responsible thing and make sure the fire is out for the night. Or... At least they try. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Wafia White, Sarah Thomas, and Nicole Goodnight. So fight the darkness with the light if you can. Sometimes you won't get the help you need from the campfire. It's really beautiful out here, Viv. Where did you hear about this place again? Some guy at work. Ah, that's right. Well, it's going to be great for this bad boy. Looking forward to getting a good long exposure of Andromeda. I still can't believe you lugged your telescope all the way here. I still don't get why you don't get why I would. Took up enough goddamn room in the car. Viv! Come on, you've been in a mood ever since we left L.A. I'm just tired. Hey, can I talk to you over here for a second, please? So, Lee, what's up? Nice out here, huh? There's no service out here, Shell. Yeah, but, I mean, what'll you be missing, really? Everything. Yeah, maybe. But see that? Up there? Those three gals that make a triangle? Oh, cool stars. Never seen those before. It's called the Summer's Triangle. Know why? They only come out in summer and form a triangle? <laughs> Smarty pants. It's made up of three stars called Deneb, Vega, and Altair. Deneb is in the constellation Cygnus, which was where the Kepler Space Telescope was pointed. And... 
it was looking for other Earth-like planets. Once inhabitable zones. Aliens, Lee. Aliens. Oh. That's kind of cool, I guess. Kinda cool? It's fucking amazing. Life. Out there. Somewhere. Makes you wonder. <sighs> Missed you, Michelle. Missed you too, Lily. It's been a while, huh? You two getting along? I'm hungry. Campsite's this way, sis. Help me lug the cooler. Uh, Shell, sorry about being a dick. Hey, no harm done. Do you mind helping me carry this? Oh, um, yeah, sure. Awesome. You mind grabbing the base? There's a grip on the side. Got it? Cool. I'm ready when you are. Come on. Come on, light, you bastard. Just use a lighter. She's a wild woman. Damn right. Besides, the fire's gotta heat up before we can use it anyway. Seriously? Yeah, sis. Cool your jets. What did you bring to eat anyway? Stuff for hot dogs and burgers. Oh, and s'mores, of course. Um... I'm a vegetarian. <gasps> what? Since when? Since two weeks ago, you would have known if you- I can make a mean grilled cheese with buns. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> hey, don't knock it till you try it. The trick is to flip the buns around so you grill the flat side. Got it. <laughs> How long do we have to wait? Uh, 10, 15 minutes. 15 minutes? I can't tell if you're joking or not. It's really not that long. Hey, we can tell some spooky stories while we wait. I'm down. One in Rome. What are we, 12? Come on, it'll be fun. Anyone want to go first? Well, if no one wants to, I guess... I have one. Okay, Lee. Let's hear it then. One of my friends told me this a while ago. Apparently it happened to one of his friends. Sweet. A friend of a friend tale. A what? Common form of folktale. Sorry, Lee. Uh, yeah, I guess it could be called that. <clears throat> this happened in Colorado. My friend's friend wasn't doing so hot mentally, so she decided to go camping in Rocky Mountain National Park. Her friend, or coworker, or brother, I can't remember, told her that solo camping had helped him sort out some stuff and thought it'd help her too. Hey, Rocky Mountain National Park! That's a place to keep in mind for our next camping trip. More of a drive, though. Yeah, but it's Colorado. Who doesn't want to go to Colorado? Yeah, I'm sure as Californians, we'll be graciously welcomed. <laughs> we can hide our license plates or something. Hey, folks. Lee is telling a story. Sorry, sis. Yeah, sorry, Lil. So, your friend's friend went camping alone in Colorado. Did she see Bigfoot or something? No. She doesn't know what she saw. She doesn't know what happened. She doesn't know what happened? What does that mean? Weren't there all those cattle mutilations in Colorado? Maybe she was abducted by aliens. No, that's not what I meant. Something happened to her and she remembers what it was, but she doesn't... She doesn't understand it. You gonna elaborate or what? Sorry, I'm bad at telling stories. Hey, 
You have my interest peaked. Mine too. So, what happened? <sighs> she gets to the park a little before sunset. The area where she booked her first campsite is full of people, kids, dogs, laughter, music, you know, all that. She sets up her tent and decides that her friend or her brother or coworker or whatever was right. It feels great to be out in nature, like maybe her problems aren't so bad after all. She feels happy for the first time in a long time and wonders if she should just stay there at the campsite. But some people show up the next day with a reservation. She has a choice, move on or leave. I'm guessing she moved on. Well, obviously, you ding-dong. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a story. Come on, people. Let her finish. Yeah, she moves on. The next site is way, way, way deeper out in the woods. It's basically backcountry. She isn't an experienced hiker, so once again, she ends up getting to the next campsite around dusk. I'm sensing a theme here. She's completely exhausted, but she sets up her tent and builds a fire. Oh, crap, our tents. We can set them up after we eat. Shouldn't take long. Lee? The second night is... bad. My friend's friend isn't used to the woods. The, the real woods. Every sound, every movement scares her, so she decides to leave the campfire going. Damn. Kinda makes me glad that we're out here. In the middle of the desert. You can see for miles. Feel safer. You know? Still wanna go to Colorado? Well, we wouldn't go backcountry camping alone, nerd. We'd stay at the first site, the one with all the people. Yeah, I guess that's true. Sorry, Lil. Continue. Wait, just an aside. Let's definitely not leave our campfire going tonight. Dangerous as hell, especially nowadays. Yeah, my friend's friend realized that after the fact, but she was scared and wasn't thinking. I mean, can you blame her? What happened to her that night? How bad was it? It was pretty bad. Well? Yeah, what the hell? Don't leave us hanging. That night, my friend's friend hears something walking around her camp. Like an animal? That's what she thought, yeah. An animal scavenging. Still, though, it creeped her out, so she decides to leave as soon as the sun comes up. <sighs> she wakes up the next day, just as the sun is starting to set. She's pissed about sleeping so late again, but there's no way she was hiking back in the dark, so she has to stay for one more night. Screw that. I would have just left. No, you wouldn't have. You're afraid of the dark. I am not. What happened on the third night? That night, she refuses to sleep, only leaving her tent to add more fuel to the fire. It isn't long until she hears the footsteps again between the trees, just beyond the glow of her campsite. Then, something hits the side of her tent. Hard. She's scared, not thinking straight, and, and goes outside. There's someone standing between the trees. My friend's friend yells at them, tells them to leave her alone. At first, nothing happens. Then, the figure starts to laugh. Scared and alone and not knowing what else to do, she runs back into her tent. The laughing gets louder and louder until, according to her, hundreds of hands start slapping, poking, pushing the sides of her tent. She passes out. Holy shit. She wakes up at sunset the next day. By then, she's decided that enough is enough. She's leaving. She's packing her things when she hears it. Help me! Please help me! Someone's screaming out in the woods. My friend's friend runs towards it before realizing that she's in no shape to help. As she turns back, the screams change to that sick laughter. Somehow, she finds her way back to the campsite. Why the hell didn't she just leave? Screw this stuff. She can always buy more, right? She was scared. 
I think it's easy to say you do everything right when you hear about how other people handle things. But the reality is, no one knows how they'd react. Yeah, I guess that's true. So your friend's friend gets back to her campsite and what? She starts tearing down her tent, she gets two of the four poles out when she realizes that the tent isn't collapsing like it should be. So she peeks inside and sees something that she still can't explain. What? Herself. What? She sees herself sitting there in the middle of the tent, so she does what any normal person would do and runs. Finally! She's running through the woods, not watching where she's going, just trying to get as far as possible when she runs straight into another person. Oh, shit. She starts screaming and flailing, trying to get away, then she hears this voice. A a regular voice. It's a guy. She calms down and asks him who he is. Apparently, he's a park ranger. Says he heard someone screaming that he was going to check it out. Thing is, he's wearing a suit, and when he moves away, his jacket flaps open and she sees he's packing. Don't some rangers carry guns? Aren't they technically government agents? I don't know, but they definitely don't wear suits. Anyway, he tells her that he'll take her back to the trailhead. Leads her to his jeep or SUV or whatever, and that's when it happens. Oh god, what? They see her, well, the her that's not her, standing in the middle of the road. The ranger looks at the road, then at my friend's friend in the seat next to him, then back to the road and says, I don't get paid enough for this shit, and guns it. You mean... He ran that thing over. Like, he killed her? It? I'm guessing, yeah. My friend's friend never saw a body or anything. Apparently, he backed up over it, too. Um, wow. Anyway, he drives my friend's friend back to the trailhead, drops her off, gives her his card, and when she looks back up, he's already driving away, back into the forest. Uh, You're joking, right? What? She was saved by a park ranger wearing a suit who then ran over her doppelganger and gave her a business card? Let me guess. Everyone stood up and clapped. Also, how the hell did he even get a car into the woods? I don't know. Maybe there are ranger roads out there or something? I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. It was a pretty good story up until that part. The arrival of the quote-unquote ranger really takes away all the tension. Yeah, sis, I gotta agree. I mean, the whole evil doppelganger thing was hard enough to suspend disbelief for, but that ending was... Well, I believe her. Why? My friend trusts her. He said she wouldn't make something like that up. Besides, he said he saw the card. Is that so? Well, good news is, fire's ready. Who's hungry? Whoa. That's so cool. Will we be alright? Should be. We finished all the food, right? No, but Dee's gonna help me lug the leftovers back to the car, aren't you, Dee? As if I have a choice. You're walking back to the car? Now? It's like a ten-minute walk, sis. We'll be fine. You'll be able to see our lights. Or, do you think we're gonna see ourselves out there and pull a switcheroo? Don't be an ass. Race ya! Hey! Cheater! You didn't even grab the food! Did they ever call the number on the card? What? Oh, I I don't know. I don't think so. Why? Just wondering. 
It's been like three or four years since this happened. I don't know if my friend's friend still even has that card. Gotcha. That grilled cheese wasn't bad, by the way. What? Oh, thanks. <sighs> that story really scared you, huh? No, it's just... Uh, I've heard a similar story. What? What do you mean? A guy in a suit with a card shows up in an unexpected place. Forget it. It's most likely just a coincidence. These things usually are. <sighs> Alright, dorks. If we're gonna get up early tomorrow for the hike, we should hit the hay now. Hit the hay? Yikes. Shut up. Shell, you want to show us how to put out the fire? Yeah. Hand me that shovel, please. Alright. Should be completely dead now. Anyone want to look at some stars before... Ahem... Hitting the hay? Shell. Hey. Shell. Wake up. Uh, uh, what? Lil? What's wrong? Did something happen? The campfire. The campfire? What about it? It's on? It's on? What do you mean, it's on? Someone relit it? Someone... <sighs> what time is it, Lil? 3.34? Maybe Dinah and Vivian went somewhere. I thought so too. Will you help me check? Yeah. Come on. Um, excuse me? But what the fuck are you doing? Is my sister here with you? Uh, yeah. Where else would she be? What are you doing? Did you guys restart the fire? What? No. You guys have been in here since we went to bed? Uh, yeah. Where else would we go? Uh, what's going on? So, no one started the fire? I don't understand. Maybe it was relit on its own? I put it out. You guys watched me. Maybe you didn't do it right. Maybe you missed part of it, an ember, and it relit. Isn't that how wildfires start? Yes, Viv. Which is why I completely doused it in water, mixed the ashes, dismantling the whole thing in the process, then dumped what, like five shovelfuls of dirt on it. You guys watched me. Do you not remember? This is a full fucking fire, you guys. Like an entire newly built campfire. I didn't do this. If someone did, just say it. This isn't funny. Chill, Michelle. Didn't you do this, Vivian? Like, as a joke? Are you serious? I've been in the tent the whole time. With you, Dania. I don't even know how to build a fire like that. I just stick sticks together. You've seen me. Remember the last time I tried? And look, none of our firewood is gone. It's still in the plastic. Maybe another camper is messing with us. Oh, that would be fucked. There were no other cars at the trailhead and no other campfires around us, though. Right? Uh, folks? Where's my telescope? What? My telescope! Pretty hard to miss. It was right there. Where is it? Do you guys hear? 
Holy shit! What just happened? What? How did it do that? What the fuck is going on? Someone is messing with us, guys. They have to be. Fires don't do this. Turn on and off like there's a switch attached to them. We should go. We can't. Are you serious? Tina, someone just stole my $3,000 telescope. So what? Buy a new one. I don't want to fucking die. Are you out of your mind? Shell, did you just not see the fire? Fine. Fuck the telescope. But we have to put out the fire. Bullshit. If someone is messing with us, let them put it out. Let's just go. Please. I'm not sticking around like some idiot in a horror movie. I'm not just going to. Oh, for fuck's sake. I'll help you put out the goddamn fire. You two, pack our shit. Do you think someone is messing with us? Maybe, but... What? Who would it be? There's no one else around. Everything's packed. You ready or what? Shell? Yeah. Then let's go. Please. What do you think that was? Who cares? Can we just go? That was real, right? Like, we didn't imagine it. You guys, look. How did it... How the fuck did it relight? Um, you guys, is that... Is that a person? Nope, 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 nope. Go, just go! Sometimes summer travel and adventure isn't about being in the wilderness. Sometimes you're just traveling from state to state with breaks limited to truck stops. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Jordan Underhill, a young man spends a month each summer with his dad, and the trip there provides a stop at the self-proclaimed world's biggest truck stop. Now what mischief could he get up to there? Performing this tale is Ellie Hirschman. So buy your snacks, get some soda, maybe treat yourself to a new hat or sunglasses. Just try to avoid vandalizing the place with some bathroom graffiti. When I was a teenager, my parents divorced. Nothing special happens all the time. My dad was quick to put distance between my mom and me, moving a state away. Though he had the legal right to see me once a month, he opted not to deal with the drive. Instead, I stayed at his house for a month each summer. It wasn't my favorite time of year. He lived in a small Midwestern town where I knew no one and had little to do. I spent most of my time riding his old bike along the decommissioned railroad tracks, and skipping rocks through a muddy creek. The only portion of the whole affair I looked forward to was the drive there and back. About midway between my mom and my dad, on a lonely stretch of highway that cut like a scythe through the golden fields of wheat, was a truck stop. 
not just any truck stop. This was the world's largest truck stop. Even as a teenager, I doubted the veracity of that claim. How could anything in the Midwest be the largest of something? Surely there was nothing so notable in this vast, rusted land. But it was big. There was a laundromat, and a bar, and a dentist. There was a massive store that stocked a massive array of glittering chrome truck accessories. It had rows of audiobooks and an entire wall filled with wolf and wizard shirts. I always begged my dad for one on the way back. And that's how I ended up with a small collection of hyper-detailed wildlife and fantasy teas. Of course, there was also an enormous public restroom. There must have been at least 20 stalls. Despite its tourist-baiting pedigree, this truck stop wasn't particularly well-kept. There was a thin veneer of grime over everything. The floors were constant swirls of dirt and red gravel. The bathrooms weren't much better. There were always pools of still water on the wall-length countertops and collecting in corners. And no one ever seemed to locate the garbage, leaving their crumpled paper towels strewn about the floor where they blew around like tumbleweeds. Naturally, like any grungy bathroom, there was a wide variety of graffiti coating the stall walls. There were the old classics like Jesus Saves, and underneath, but he can't save me from gas station burritos. And I hate vandalism. A hail satin scribbled around a crude pentagram, and I don't think they meant to worship the fabric. And every manner of dick you could ever imagine. Big ones, short ones, veiny ones, girthy ones, stick figures with penises for heads, or penis guns, and on and on. When I went out to my dad's that first summer, I was firmly engrossed in my edgy phase and was eager to add my own infantile message to the rest. I picked a middle stall that was relatively devoid of art and wrote directly on the door at eye level so that anyone sitting down would immediately see my chicken scratch. That was prime real estate. At the time, the thing at the forefront of my mind was a bully at my school, Arnold. He was the type of person who would go out of his way to find me during a passing period just so he could knock the books out of my arms. The type of person who deliberately aimed at heads in dodgeball and whipped his throws as hard as possible. What a prick. So I took out my black sharpie and wrote my own classic. For a good time, call Arnold at phone number redacted. Like a truly resentful ball of angst, I put his actual home phone number. Then I was gone and forgot all about it until the end of the month with my dad. On the way back, I used the restroom and recalled what I had written. Of course, I was excited to see if my lewd message had attracted any replies. Back then, bathroom wall graffiti was like a sort of cringe-inducing public square, a place for all manner of perverse and childish discourse. Below my message, in red ink, was a reply. I called, but no one answered. I chuckled to myself. Back then, I really did hope that someone had called him. He deserved nothing less for his cruel behavior. I could have left things there, but I couldn't help my desire to egg things on. So I wrote something I greatly regret. Why don't you give him a visit? He's always happy to have company. Address redacted. When the school year started, I didn't notice that Arnold wasn't around until one of my friends pointed it out to me. It was a welcome relief. We figured that his parents had moved east to one of the larger cities. Our town was mid-sized but slowly dying. It wouldn't be the first or last time we lost a classmate to that long exodus, 
Jonesboro is a shadow of its former self these days, but that's a story for another time. I didn't think about Arnold again until the following summer, when I was once again on the long drive to my dad's. We stopped at the world's largest truck stop, and after perusing the selection of salty snacks, I used the restroom. As soon as I set foot on those cracked and yellowed square tiles, I remembered my stall door conversation. I quickly located that middle stall, locked the door behind me, and sat down. There was a new message, written in the same hand and with the same red marker. Thanks for the tip. I got the best head of my life. Smiley face. Something about the message unnerved me. It was just as crass and immature as anything you'd expect to see there. I mean, on the right-hand wall of the stall, someone had scrawled the message, Jessica's mom has huge tits, above a crude rendering of the apparent mother in question. I think it was the smiley face that felt weird to me, like it really was a genuine nod of appreciation. That and the penmanship was oddly perfect. Whoever was writing these messages lacked the unsteady, jagged hand of everyone else. Their script was comprised of perfect lines and pristine curves. It seemed out of place next to the other harried scribbles. I don't know what it was that possessed me, but I wrote again just beneath their message, I'm sure he'd do it for you anytime. That summer visit was another relatively uneventful one, aside from meeting my dad's new girlfriend, who was surprisingly pleasant. Of course, I was too immature to appreciate her efforts then, and spent much of my time brooding alone. On the quiet ride home, we stopped at the truck stop once more, back in the restroom. It was a little odd, but I got a little thrill wondering whether there would be a response and what it might be. When I sat down this time, though, I felt my stomach churn. Arnold's all used up. Need someone new. What about you, smiley face? There was a clacking of metal in the stall next to mine, the unbuckling of a belt, I nearly jumped out of my skin. This time, I didn't write a response. It was starting to feel too personal. I booked it out of that restroom without looking back. I was in such a rush that I didn't even snag the black bear shirt I had decided to grab for a souvenir. I locked myself in my dad's truck and waited. Didn't utter a word the rest of the way home. It was in October that a fisherman pulled a headless torso from the Sangamon River. It was that same month that I found out Arnold hadn't moved. He had been missing for over a year. To people that cared, it was big news when he disappeared. But not a lot of people cared. They never did find the head, nor the killer. So no one could definitively say it was Arnold's body. I imagine it's still sitting in a morgue somewhere, waiting for the final piece of the puzzle. Of course, I know it's him. It has to be. And me? Well, I didn't go back to my dad's the next summer. I blamed it on his new girlfriend. Told him I didn't want to be around them. I regret that too, but I couldn't tell him or my mom the truth. I couldn't tell them I wasn't going back because, even if we didn't stop at that truck stop, I was terrified of who might be watching me. Looking back, it seems irrational, but I realized later that the address I provided wasn't even Arnold's. Right house number, wrong street. And so I wondered how they found him. And even more, I wondered who else I might have condemned.
In our final tale, we meet a woman who, despite barely knowing her, is invited to an old acquaintance's funeral. Already feeling awkward being there, the situation is made stranger when the dead woman's sister gives the woman a box of old cassette tapes. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Leo Harrison, when she listens to the tapes, she learns disturbing secrets about what happened one summer at a very unique summer camp. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Kristen DiMercurio, and Tanya Milosevic. So, as we'll learn, some secrets are buried deep. Some are difficult to fully uncover. That is, unless you're willing to go underground. On December 10, 2000, first responders flooded the parking lot of an abandoned strip mall off Highway 385 in Pennington County, South Dakota. In the early hours of the morning, it was said a real estate surveyor had discovered a corpse on the premises and dialed 911. Details came out gradually, fed to the local community in fragments over the course of the following days. A young woman, as of yet unidentified, her body had been curled awkwardly in a corner of a derelict cafe where she had attempted to take refuge from the elements during the previous night's rainstorm. She had evidently been wandering several days in the wilderness, as her clothes were besmirched with grass, dirt, thorns, and bits of twigs, her body malnourished and emaciated. It was inferred from a set of nearby tracks that she must have traveled southwest from Sheridan Lake, close to the site of some hiking trails and an abandoned summer camp. Why this was, and what she had been doing there, no one could tell. It was not considered unusual for bodies to turn up in and around Black Hills National Forest. Every now and then, campers and hikers would inevitably get lost on the trails, growing disoriented before finally vanishing into the depths of the wilderness, only to be found dead months later, if at all. Some would accidentally stumble off the side of a cliff, perhaps dying instantly, perhaps bleeding out for hours and dying slowly. Others would simply starve to death or succumb to elemental exposure. Others yet would find themselves mauled by a predatory animal, or perhaps stabbed by some insane vagrant wandering the area. The incident of December 10th, however, was unique among such instances. The young woman in the abandoned mall had not died from starvation, exposure, dehydration, or any of the other common causes. The coroner instead speculated in his report that she had likely experienced a nervous breakdown after becoming lost in the woods, then suffered a heart attack from the sheer panic induced by her situation. Some people twist this around to say that she died of fright, that she witnessed something so horrific in the forest of the Black Hills it caused her heart to fail. But most commentators agree this is only hearsay, an urban legend. The young woman was eventually identified as one Lucille Mason, a mentally unstable college dropout and resident of Wyoming who had been passing through the area. When asked about Mason's reasons for visiting Black Hills National Forest by herself and in the middle of a harsh winter, 
Those who knew her admitted they had neither seen nor spoken to Lucille in years, and that they had no idea what she had been doing out there. The story was quick to saturate the whispered folklore of rural South Dakota, eventually spreading beyond Pennington County and into the surrounding regions. It soon became something of an obsession among amateur researchers who sought paranormal explanations for Lucille's strange death. To this day, obscure websites on UFO phenomena still claim that Lucille was an abductee and try to link her story to a broader history of abductions that have allegedly taken place in and around Black Hills National Forest. Others claim she was a victim of a government experiment and cite an implausible web of esoteric theories to support this interpretation. But most commentators agree she was only a troubled individual with a history of mental illness who became disoriented in the woods and met with a tragic end. Though I had not considered myself particularly close to Lucille Mason, I was nonetheless invited to her funeral that December in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The service was held in a small Presbyterian cemetery on the outskirts of town. We convened afterwards at the family home, an old Victorian which had been left to Lucille and her sister following the deaths of their parents. I stayed later into the night than I had meant to, waiting for the snow to die down, and found myself... I don't remember how, wandering the halls in a weird trance. I turned a corner on the first story and saw that the door to Lucille's room was halfway open, a sliver of light shining through the crevice. I could hear crying from within. I made the rather impulsive decision to push lightly on the door and look inside. Her sister Melissa was on the edge of the mattress, her head in her hands. Boxes of Lucille's things were sitting on the floor, some of them overturned haphazardly, their contents strewn about. Yearbooks, CDs, jewelry, paperback novels, a few childhood toys. <laughs> Melissa stared at me with a look of vague recollection. We had not seen each other for almost a decade. She had been around 14 or 15 at that time. Now she was almost 31 and hardly recognizable. It did not help that her features were obscured by running mascara. I expected her to turn me away and had almost shut the door when she invited me in. I did as she asked and stood in silence while she tried to gain composure. Searching for something to occupy herself, she went about collecting Lucille's things from the floor and putting them back inside their boxes which I imagined she had knocked over, perhaps in a fit of rage. You were a good friend of Lucille's. I wasn't sure how to answer the statement. Lucille and I had met in our freshman year of high school. We had maintained a shallow friendship for a time, but hadn't spoken to each other since the 11th grade, when the Masons had moved away to Wyoming. Years had passed since then, and I had hardly even thought of her until receiving the invitation to her funeral. Yes. It was all I could manage to say in response. We were good friends. Melissa was on the verge of saying something else when she came to a halt, 
distracted by a tattered plush doll she had picked up from the floor. Forgetting my existence, she rose slowly to her feet and drifted to a leather chair beside a floor lamp. I saw her features illuminated, and only just now noticed the truly abysmal state that she was in. Unnaturally pale and gaunt. It almost looked as if she had been starving herself. She seemed transfixed by her sister's little toy rabbit. I remember it was covered in coffee stains and missing one of its black, beady eyes. I was about to excuse myself from the room when she looked up at me, trying, failing, to suppress a sob. Take these things away from me! I'm sorry? She wouldn't have wanted me to cling to her belongings. If she could have known how horrible I would feel just staring at them. You should take them away from me. Take all of it. Keep it. Sell it. Burn it. I don't care. Just make it go away, please. She was so distressed in that moment, I would have done almost anything to make it stop. I did not bother trying to calm her down or reason with her. I left that night with Lucille's belongings sliding around the trunk of my 93 Dodge Dynasty. I sometimes wish I hadn't. Those boxes sat in my attic for years, unopened, untouched, shoved into a dark corner with the memory of Lucille Mason herself. It wasn't until one morning in October 2005 that I finally rooted through them while preparing for an eBay sale. The contents didn't faze me like they had fazed Melissa. I sifted through them cynically, indifferently, looking to see if I couldn't make a quick dollar off them. However, there wasn't much of anything to put up for sale. Most of her possessions either showed significant wear or were simply too worthless to bother with. One exception was an old cassette player buried at the bottom of a box of pulp fantasy books and music magazines. It was a miracle the old thing even worked when I plugged it in. I set it up in my living room and hit play, listening to the whir of the internal mechanism. A few more hours rifling around and I stumbled across Lucille's tapes in a separate box. Rather than a collection of albums or audiobooks, what I instead discovered was a set of blank audio cassettes. Maxwell Normal Bias U90s with handwritten labels. Each was marked with a date, beginning November 1999 and ending March 2000, just months before Lucille's death. I inserted the tape marked November 21st, 1999, and pressed play. November 21st, 1999. A bitter, cold day. The sun is out of sight. The AC unit is broken again, so I'm sitting here in layers, and the landlord isn't answering the phone as usual. Personally, I can't tolerate the idea that my thoughts are important enough to document not even for my own alleged benefit seems pretentious to me 
then I guess the idea is to document them because they are important rather to vent or something like that. Dr. Levitt spewed some BS about containing my issues somewhere. Some kind of self-help crap. Someone's knocking. I'm guessing it must be maintenance. November 28th, 1999. Had that nightmare again? The one with the shed? I'm standing in this deserted field in some remote, isolated space. A familiar place, but one I can't recall the name of. I start to walk towards the shed. Just as I'm about to enter, I wake up and I always feel terrified afterwards. Nothing ever changes. It's always exactly the same. Been having it for close to a year now. Sometimes when I think of it for too long, it triggers an episode, as Dr. Levitt calls it. My grades have been slipping lately. I can't find the motivation to show up to classes or study. I, I got a D on my last exam. That's a first. I tried to study earlier today, but I couldn't stop thinking about the nightmare. That image of the shed standing in that empty field is seared into my waking thoughts. And that awful feeling of terror that's attached to it, that feeling of pure fear and anxiety, I can't make it stop. No matter what I do, I don't know how to make it stop. I will not attempt to recollect and transcribe the contents of the next tape, which seemed only to consist, from what I could bear to listen to, of incoherent sobbing and screaming. In retrospect, it seems easy to recognize that this recording must have captured one of the so-called episodes Lucille had mentioned in the tape of November 28, 1999. Deciding that I had heard quite enough, I packed up the tape collection and stowed it away in a closet. The following evening, I decided I would try to reach out to Melissa Mason, tell her I had discovered a collection of recordings which her sister had left behind, and that I would be more than happy to mail them. I wouldn't mention the awful things I'd heard. Some digging on the internet gave me an address and landline for one Melissa Mason in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I called the number the next morning, only to hear a voice on the other end that I did not recognize. When I mentioned Melissa Mason, the stranger fell silent before explaining that Melissa no longer lived at the address. She had been killed, in fact, about a year before, inexplicably bludgeoned in her sleep by an unidentified intruder. She had spent weeks in a coma before finally passing away one evening in June 2003. I was speaking to her former landlord, Taken aback, I mumbled my thanks to the old woman and hung up the phone. With Lucille's parents and only sister long dead, that left no inheritor. At least not as far as I knew. The tapes sat in my closet for months. I kept telling myself I would get rid of them one day. But something within me did not want to part with them. The idea felt wrong somehow. I managed to forget about them for a time, until one scorching July day, routing around my closet in search of a missing box fan, I rediscovered the cassette player and the tape collection. 
resolving to finally throw the tapes away and consign the entire thing to memory, I set them out on my kitchen counter and planned to toss them the next morning. But somehow it never happened. I couldn't bring myself to destroy the last remnants of Lucille's existence. She and her immediate family were gone, and apart from some photos scattered here and there on the internet, these tapes were all that remained of who she really was. I left them untouched for a few more days until later one evening, and under the slight influence of alcohol, I ended up giving into a buried sense of curiosity. I plugged the cassette player in, chose the tape dated December 15th, 1999, and pressed play. December 15th, 1999. Today, I decided to finish going through the boxes that Mom and Dad left behind after the accident. There was one I'd been meaning to go through, a box of the photo books. I'd been putting it off because I'd assumed it would be too painful. Mom was an obsessive documentarian, so of course there were reams upon reams of leather-bound Polaroid albums, starting with Melissa's birth in 1969 and ending around 1996, just a few months before Mom and Dad passed away. One book in particular caught my eye. A crude label on the spine read M and L, Summer 88. I opened it up and started picking through the pages, which had been welded together by the residue of dried coffee. I found myself smiling at the photos of Melissa and I, playing in the yard at our family's old house. In most of the photos, Melissa was teaching me how to do something or another. I was around six or seven years old at the time, just learning to ride my bike and shoot basketball and all that. Around halfway through the photo book, the subject matter changed abruptly. Melissa was nowhere to be seen. It was nothing but photos of myself taken in some strange, unrecognizable place. One picture showed me standing in a parking lot near the edge of a forest. It almost resembled the head of a hiking trail in a national park. A sign was visible in the corner of the shop. It read, Shady Pines Summer Camp. The next photos showed me interacting with children whom I can't remember ever having seen or met. One of these photos stood out in particular. I was seated in a group with about a dozen other children inside a forested clearing. Barely visible in the distant background was an old, rundown shed. It was identical to the one in my recurring nightmare. December 20th. It's been almost a week since I discovered the photo book. I'm still at a loss to make sense of it. I have no recollection of ever having attended a summer camp in the year 1988. I do not remember a single one of the smiling faces that appear alongside mine in those rainy Polaroid photographs. How could I have simply forgotten an entire summer? And, and then there's that one detail. That rundown shed in the background of the group portrait, the one from my nightmare, it's identical. I keep telling myself that what I'm seeing is only a coincidence, that I'm just focusing on that detail because of a pattern recognition bias, but something about it seems so wrong. I, 
I can't stop thinking about it. semester. My GPA dropped three points from last spring. I'm disqualified from my scholarship. I have to retake two classes. I still don't know what went wrong. It feels as if I totally lost control. Far worse than I ever have before. Anyways, I've been distraught ever since I saw the transcript. Completely distraught. It's been difficult to get out of bed most days. I've been drinking a lot more, too. Usually by myself. Sometimes at dive bars downtown. When I have the energy to get up and do something, I find myself rooting around my parents' boxes looking for more information about that summer camp. Shady Pines Summer Camp. The more I repeat that name, the more it seems to stir something in me. I wasn't able to find any other record of the trip. Seems the old photo book is all there is. But I did find something while I was browsing the internet at the public library. There's not much information about it online, but apparently there was indeed a Shady Pines Summer Camp in Black Hills National Forest, Pennington County, South Dakota near Sheridan Lake. It's now defunct, but evidently it used to be some kind of a sleepaway camp for children aged K through eight. I stayed at the library until midnight trying to find as much information as possible. Unfortunately, there's not very much out there as the camp was actually sued into oblivion. A lot of official information wound up suppressed somehow. I don't know, really. There's a lot of mystery and ambiguity surrounding the place, it looks like. I can only find a handful of news stories here and there. An announcement of the grand opening, a few promo pieces. Also, a couple articles from national sources recounting the details of the lawsuit. Some sort of accident involving a kid who was harmed by an employee. The details are all rather vague. January 5th, 2000. Dr. Levitt says that he's concerned about my recent behavior. Says I don't sound like myself, and that I seem to be focusing all of my attention on irrelevant things when I should be focusing on preparing to improve and change course for the spring semester. He started talking medication again. I told him I don't need any pills, like I always tell him. I told him about the photo book, too. About the shed. About shady pines. He agreed that it was odd that perhaps something painful had happened during my time there. He told me to be careful of focusing on it too much, that I should hold off and focus on other things, save the introspection for the consulting room. He said he thinks it might inflame my obsessive tendencies if I delve further. I agreed at the time, but I can't pull myself away now.
January 8th. I stayed up late reading the articles I brought home from the library. Many of them were unremarkable. Mostly just press releases and puffy articles announcing the opening of Shady Pine Summer Camp in 81. I learned that the camp had been funded by a generous grant from a group known as the Appleseed Foundation and established in early 1981 as a retreat for, quote, gifted K-8 children suffering from conflicts in social integration. I think everything in that statement would have applied to my younger self, except for the gifted part. The camp brought in steady business for the next decade, touting its scenic surroundings and staff of well-credentialed mentors drawn from the best counseling programs and psychiatric think tanks. All in all, it seems like it would have been awfully expensive to send your kid there for an entire summer, a detail which baffled me, considering my parents struggled to meet their mortgage payments, paid for practically everything on credit cards, and bought melanized clothes and Christmas presents from the car down the street. The last few articles that I read at the library were published around 1991 and 1992, near the time of the camp's closure. These articles came from national news sources and detailed the controversy and subsequent lawsuit surrounding the accidental death of a camper in summer of 1990. A young boy had suffocated to death on the premises, having been left confined for more than 24 hours in a small airtight trunk behind the camp's medical unit. Though the fine details of the lawsuit were kept quiet, it was easily discerned that the jury had sided with the prosecution's claim of criminal negligence. In the end, the parents received $50 million from the so-called Appleseed Foundation, and a former camp employee wound up in prison. The camp shut down for good in 1992, its reputation obviously destroyed by the lawsuit and all the negative press surrounding it. The former employee who wound up in prison was a deeply disturbed individual. His sentence was reduced on claims of insanity. By all accounts, he seems to suffer from dissociative identity disorder, as it's called these days. He would switch between different personalities, each of which demonstrated no conscious knowledge of the others. He actually claimed a few years later, after he'd been treated, that the different personalities belonged to spirits which had possessed him. He said it was the spirit of Ormond Crow, the notorious child killer, which had made him do that terrible thing in 1990. The entire story is really weird. January 15th, 2000. Today I went on another online search. A lot of the search results only turned up this useless, nonsensical, conspiracy-type stuff. Some eccentric character, uh, Henry Barlow, I think his name is, put out a book a few years ago about the history of UFO sightings in Black Hills National Forest and how he believes this somehow has something to do with the U.S. government and this thing called Operation Paperclip and how that is somehow connected to Shady Pines. And I... I really don't know, to be honest. The guy rambles and draws a lot of strange connections between things. He keeps saying how there were these people who would go missing in the 50s and 60s and show up on the side of the highway in South Dakota months later, raving about how they'd been recruited for a program where people would use their abilities to attract and contact ghosts. I'm not joking. Ghosts. This, according to Henry Barlow's wild imagination, has something to do 
with shady pines, somehow. Suffice it to say, his so-called theories aren't all that useful to me. Anyways, I gave up looking for information online, but was able to track down an interesting book on the shelves of the Cheyenne Public Library, A Comprehensive Tourist's Guide to Black Hills National Forest. I'm thumbing through it now. It goes over all of the major trails, the flora and fauna of the region, full of photos. I'm hoping it might stir my memory. It's 4 a.m. and I'm sitting on my apartment's fire escape, smoking my third cigarette in a row and looking out over the south side of the city. I can see the freight yards of Union Pacific Station. There's a cargo train just in. It's been sitting there a couple hours now. I can't sleep tonight. After I put away that book on Black Hills National Forest, I drifted off and had the most god-awful nightmare. Nothing about the contents of the nightmare was that bad, just how I felt after waking. I've been up ever since, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about the nightmare. It was the shed dream again, only this time, instead of ending just before I opened the door and stepped inside, the dream kept going. I could feel everything just as if I were actually right there in the cool darkness of the night in some isolated rural area standing outside the shed. I could feel my hand gripping the doorknob, could hear the creak of the hinges and feel the, the musty, stifled air inside that little room. I could smell the mildew and the mold. I had the sense that someone was beside me, guiding me, although I couldn't see them in the darkness. We walked for a few yards by the light of a lantern and arrived at a cramped corner the stranger lifted up some of the floorboards. Underneath was a hatch penetrating the foundation. It, it almost resembled the door to a bomb shelter you'd see in some Cold War era backyard bunker. The stranger turned the hatch's wheel and lifted it up. A ladder disappeared into the darkness of a tunnel that led God knows how many feet below ground. That was when I awoke. I heard my neighbor knocking at the front door. When I opened the door and asked her what was wrong, she said she heard me screaming. She was worried I was being attacked, she said. January 20th. I was walking home today, taking the scenic route through the historic district when I decided to hang a left down an alley containing a few interesting out-of-the-way establishments. A tattoo parlor, an antique furniture store, and an occult bookshop. I made the impulsive decision to check out the antique store and see if I couldn't find something interesting to lift the mood in my apartment and maybe get my mind off things. But I stopped before I could reach the antique store. Something in the bookseller's display had caught my eye. It was one of the, the books sitting on the middle shelf of the rack. The cover consisted of five symbols arranged in a row against a faded saffron background. I stood 
transfixed by this for what must have been a solid 10 or 15 minutes just staring. I had seen these symbols somewhere. They were from left to right, a circle, a cross, a set of three curved lines running parallel, a square, and a star, each enclosed within a rectangular frame. I didn't wake from my trance until a clerk stepped outside and asked in a concerned tone what it was I wanted. She had been watching me for several minutes and had probably suspected something was wrong with me. Without thinking, I immediately asked if I could thumb through the book in the display. She agreed and invited me in. I flipped to a random page and read a few lines. Quote, In the initial period of his research, Ryan's most promising subject was Adam Lindmayer, an undergraduate at Duke. Ryan and his research team found that Lindmayer's results were below chance, even scoring 100% accuracy on one reading. However, Lindsmayer's accuracy gradually diminished over time. Some have attributed this to Lindsmayer's increasing boredom or exhaustion, while others have cited it as evidence of Ryan's findings on telepathy being products of coincidence. I continued flipping through this book until I landed on a full-page photograph. It was a picture showing some sort of experiment conducted in the early 20th century. Two men, one middle-aged, another much younger, were seated at a table in an academic setting while several onlookers gathered around some scribbling notes as they watched. Five cards were lying face up on the table, each one containing one of the mysterious symbols that had first caught my attention. The caption read, 1931, Joseph Banks Ryan analyzes the results of Adam Lindsmayer's reading. The famous Zenner cards are displayed face up before them. The book is sitting on my shelf now. I don't particularly care about the content, only those symbols. The quote-unquote Zenner cards, as they're called in the book. Evidently, they were used in a series of studies that took place in the 1930s and 40s. The researchers involved with these experiments went on to claim that their findings were evidence supporting the reality of telepathy, telekinesis, clairvoyance, and other paranormal abilities. When I first arrived home from the store, I stared at those five symbols for hours trying to remember where it was I knew them from. I couldn't figure out just why I was so transfixed by them. Something about them seemed magnetic, in a word. I couldn't pull myself away. I swallowed some allergy medicine and a couple glasses of wine to help me forget and fall asleep, only to wake up just an hour later. I had dreamt about the Zener cards. I was very young, no older than six, I think, seated in a nondescript room somewhere under fluorescent light, surrounded by several strange people. I thought I recognized one of them as a substitute teacher I'd had for a month in first grade. On the table in front of me, I could see a row of five cards turned face down. One of the adults in the room asked me what sequence of cards I was seeing in my mind's eye. He wrote my responses on a notepad, then turned over the cards one by one. There were the five familiar symbols printed on each card. We did this several times. At the end, I overheard the adults whispering something about being admitted to the program. That's when I woke up. I laid in bed, staring at the ceiling for several hours, then came out here for a smoke. I don't know what to make of that dream, whether it was just 
something conjured up by my imagination or some forgotten memory. I really don't know. I've been keeping a dream diary. A journal of drawings inspired by my dreams. It's a method I came up with to capture and record my memories of Shady Pine Summer Camp. For weeks now, I've been having these extremely vivid but fragmented dreams about my time at the camp. Just little broken images of dislocated memories that seemed to come out of nowhere. The face of a kid I knew, or a certain board game they had in the rec room, or a hiking trip we took. I made this habit of just rolling out of bed as soon as the dream is over and sketching what I remember. I don't know what to make of it. I just keep going, hoping it will add up. Perhaps this sounds insane, but I've been considering making a trip out to South Dakota at some point so that I can see Shady Pines. I know from my reading that the property is still intact. For some reason, they never tore it down, and I know more or less where it's located near the coast of Sheridan Lake, off of one of the trails that run through the area. I feel drawn there, like physically drawn, as if something is calling me there, pulling me in like a magnet, and I have this strange notion that the only way to end my fixation is to hike out to that abandoned camp in the forest of South Dakota and see it for myself. I don't have my own car, of course, but I think I can get round-trip tickets through the Greyhound system. I can take some food, some maps of the trails, a knife, protect myself, and I can be there and back again in the course of just a few days. Maybe it sounds crazy. I don't know. But I'm willing to do almost anything to get closure. That was where Lucille's tape collection ended. I really didn't have the slightest idea what to make of her story, whether I should do anything with the information I now possessed. It seemed clear to me that she had vanished from Cheyenne and visited Black Hills National Forest in a confused, misguided attempt to reconcile herself with some sort of vaguely remembered trauma involving the defunct camp where she had spent a single summer of her childhood. And it was there, on December 10th, 2000, that she had lost her mind completely, dying of a heart attack after fleeing from the camp and wandering several days alone in the woods. I assumed I was the only person in existence who knew about this link between the sight of Lucille Mason's death and the mysterious recollections which had plagued her in her final months alive. With every immediate relation of Lucille's being long dead, I couldn't think of anyone whom I might reach out to with this information. There was no use telling the authorities. It wasn't as if I had discovered evidence of foul play. Just a psychological motive in a case that had long been closed and unequivocally deemed an accidental death. No. Rather than make any attempt to revive the specter of Lucille's sad short life, I simply let it go. Choosing to give her troubled spirit a rest and consign my discovery to the same corner of my mind where I kept everything that was best left forgotten. Somehow, sooner or later, the tapes wound up in the trash, carried off to rot in a garbage heap somewhere. This, however, did not mean that sometimes, driving alone on a dark night or lying awake in bed with a bout of insomnia, 
I didn't occasionally recall Lucille's story and replay the entire thing in my head. There were details which I would never be able to move on from. The strange nightmares. The memories of the Zenarkards, as they were called. The night terrors she had experienced. What had it all meant? What exactly had taken place at this defunct sleepaway camp in the backwoods of Pennington County, South Dakota? Had Lucille's strange, fragmented memories been at all legitimate? Or were they merely the workings of delusion? One day late in November of 2009... I was traveling up through South Dakota on a business trip. I got laid over waiting for an Amtrak and had to come up with a way to pass the time. As I was leaving the train station to visit a bar I'd heard good things about, I stopped beside a map in the lobby. The moment I saw the words Black Hills National Forest printed across the topography of the state's southwestern region, a wave of chills came over me. I hadn't even realized until now that I was only 15 miles from Shady Pine Summer Camp. I decided I would go try to see it before my train arrived. It wasn't that far of a drive out to the trailhead after all, and my curiosity was piqued. I boarded a bus going southwest and arrived in Black Hills National Forest before I knew it. I bought a map at a kiosk and began walking. I didn't really know what I was expecting to get out of the journey. I certainly started to question the decision as I made my way down the trail, into the darkness of the forest. It was a cold day in the middle of winter, so there was pretty much no one else around. Just me, all alone, with only a knife to protect myself. I kept going regardless. The path ahead became narrower, darker, and denser the closer I came to the region where the camp was allegedly located. I guess that no one had really bothered to maintain this particular stretch of the trail since the camp's closure in the early 1990s. There were long, gnarled branches blocking many parts of the path, and sometimes they were bad enough that I actually had to cut them down or crouch just to get beyond them. It was almost early dusk when I finally reached an especially unkempt part of the trail that gave way to an expanse of clearing. There, in a field of dead grass, were the overgrown remnants of Shady Pine Summer Camp. It was as humble as I had expected. Just a few wood cabins and a small playground on the edge of the property. I lingered there for a short moment and seriously considered turning around. From the looks of it, the old camp seemed like the kind of place where squatters would probably get up to trouble. I could see crushed beer cans and cigarette butts littering the ground, indicating that someone had been there recently. Yet, when I thought again of the time and money I'd invested in coming to this place, I decided I may as well keep moving forward. Why not? I passed through the playgrounds first. It was nothing remarkable. Just a couple rusty swing sets, some wooden forts, and a rainbow-colored merry-go-round spinning slowly in the wind, creaking as it went. I moved beyond the playground into the commons area. 
I took a moment to briefly examine all the different buildings on the property. There were the medical unit, the mess hall, the classroom, and the dormitory, more or less as they would have appeared when Lucille Mason visited in the summer of 1988. I found nothing especially interesting inside any of these buildings. Only a collection of deserted, vermin-infested little rooms, pervaded throughout by the nauseating stench of mold and mildew. I was about to head out and get back on the trail when I finally saw it. Through a window in the dormitory, I had a good view of the camp's north end. A barren expanse of grass ran maybe 20 or 30 yards before giving way to pine woods. On the very edge of this field was a small dilapidated shed. The same one which had plagued Lucille in her nightmares. Dusk was getting near by the time I stepped out into the field and started to approach the shed. Even though I knew it would be dangerous to remain here any longer, I couldn't help moving forward. After everything I had learned, all the vague, mysterious details that had plagued me for so many years since discovering Lucille's tapes, after all that, I knew I had no other choice than to go as far as I possibly could. In hindsight, I was not fully aware at the time of just how deep and unconscious a fixation had brought me to this point. The door to the shed was already ajar. I gave it a nudge. What remained of the sunlight poured into the room as the door swung open easily. There was almost nothing in there. Just a few empty wooden crates and a table in the corner where someone must have kept their gardening tools once upon a time. I thought of the dream in which Lucille had remembered finding a hatch beneath the floorboards. That was when I noticed a series of floorboards in the northwest corner, which looked as if they were oddly aligned. Pressing on them, I found they weren't completely nailed down. I easily stripped them away one by one. At first it was difficult to tell what was beneath those floorboards. In the growing darkness, I had to take off my backpack and dig around for my flashlight. When I finally found it and pointed it into the hole, I was met with the sight of a large metal hatch. If I was going to get it open, the only way would be to go down there, under the floorboards. I lowered myself down, shone my light on the hatch, and took a good look. There was a wheel in the center of the hatch. I gave it a turn, or at least tried to. It seemed that decades worth of rust corrosion had all but locked up the gears. It took about a quarter of an hour, but I finally managed to force it open. I lifted the hatch and looked inside. The tunnel must have extended at least 40 feet below ground. There had evidently been a ladder once, leading to the bottom, but it had long since fallen apart. Only the first 10 or 15 feet remained. I could see the remnants of the ladder strewn about the tile floor at the bottom of the tunnel. I would have needed a rope and a pulley to get down there, the kind that cave explorers and mountaineers use. As it was, I could not go any further. 
in a sort of trance, I closed the hatch, hoisted myself up, packed my things, and retraced my steps down the trail. Darkness had fallen. I moved quickly. I remember feeling very afraid, whether due to something I had seen at the camp or the fact I was alone at night on a trail in the middle of nowhere. I really can't recall. Everything about that night is disorienting to remember, like a half-forgotten dream. I just recall that I wanted to get out of there and back to the city as fast as possible. Before I knew it, I was back at the train station. I found myself unable to sleep during the overnight train ride. Memories of what I had seen replayed themselves without end as I watched the passing landscape, the dense pine woods and rolling foothills of rural South Dakota, hiding God knows how many secrets. For many years, I had felt somehow detached and distanced from the contents of Lucille's tapes, but now I understood it was real. All of it. I couldn't stop wondering what had happened to Lucille in that strange subterranean complex buried beneath the remnants of Shady Pine Summer Camp. I couldn't stop wondering why the floors of that underground room had been crafted from the sort of tile you only see in a hospital or a laboratory, when every other structure in the camp had been built from cheap wood. I couldn't stop wondering what Lucille had seen when she visited the camp that day in December 2000. What it was that had caused her to break down, lose her sanity, and die of fright. I am grateful to say I will never know for sure. may be over, but the darkness will linger on, so long as you reside in the No Sleep Zone. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for joining us in the No Sleep Zone and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.